Chapter Twenty of Unleavened Bread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Unleavened Bread by Robert Grant. Chapter Twenty. When Selma uttered her edict that Luella Bailey must be elected, she did not know that the election was only three days off. When she was told this by Mrs. Earle, she cast about feverishly during a few hours for the means to compass certain victory, and promptly and sensibly disclaimed responsibility for the result, suggesting even that her first appearance as a remover of mountains be deferred to the time when the bill should be before the legislature. As she aptly explained to Mrs. Earle, the canvas was virtually at an end. She was unacquainted with the practical features of the situation, and was to all intents a stranger to Benham after so long an absence. Mrs. Earle was unable to combat the logic of these representations, but she obtained from Selma a ready promise to accompany the Benham Institute to the final rally on the evening before Election Day, and sit in a prominent place on the platform. The Institute was to attend as a body by way of promoting the cause of its candidate, for though the meeting was called in aid of the entire Democratic municipal ticket, Honorable James O. Lyons, the leading orator of the occasion, had promised to devote special attention to Miss Bailey, whose election, owing to the attitude of the Reform Club, was recognized as in doubt. Selma also agreed to accompany Mrs. Earle in a hack on the day itself, and career through the city in search of recalcitrant and different female voters, for the recently acquired right of Benham women to vote for members of the school board had not as yet been exercised by any considerable number of the emancipated sex. As part of the program of the meeting, the Benham Institute, or the major portion of it, for there were a few who sympathized openly with Mrs. Taylor, filed showily onto the platform headed by Mrs. Earle, who waved her pocket-handkerchief at the audience, which was the occasion for renewed hand-clapping and enthusiasm. Selma walked not far behind and took her seat among the forty other members, who all wore white silk badges stamped and red with the sentiment, A vote for Luella Bailey is a vote for the liberty of the people. Her pulses were throbbing with interest and pleasure. This was the sort of thing she delighted in, and which she had hoped would be a frequent incident of her life in New York. It pleased her to think how naturally and easily she had taken her place in the ranks of these earnest, enthusiastic workers, and that she had merely to express a wish in order to have leadership urged upon her. Matters had shaped themselves exactly as she desired. Mr. Parsons not only treated her completely as an equal, he had already become obviously dependent on her, and begun to develop the tendencies of an invalid. The exercises were of a partisan caste. The theory that municipal government should be independent of party politics had been an adage in Benham since its foundation, and been disregarded annually by nine-tenths of the population ever since. This was a democratic love-feast. The speakers and the audience alike were in the best of spirits, for there was no uncertainty of the party profits as to the result of the borough's ballot, excepting with regard to Miss Bailey. The rest of the ticket would unquestionably be elected. Accordingly, all hands and voices were free to focus their energies in her behalf, and thus make the victory a clean sweep. Nevertheless, the earlier speakers felt obliged to let their eloquence flow over the whole range of political misgovernment, from the White House and the national platform down, although the actual issue was the choice of a mayor, twelve aldermen, and a school committee, so that only casual reference was made to the single weak spot on the ticket, until the Honorable James O. Lyons rose to address the meeting. The reception accorded him was more spontaneous and effusive than that which had been bestowed on either of his predecessors. 
and as he stood waiting with dignified urbanity for the applause to subside, some rapturous admirer called for three cheers, and the tumult was renewed. Selma was thrilled. Her acquaintance with Mr. Lyons naturally heightened her interest, and she observed him eagerly. Time had added to his corporeal weight since he had acted as her counsel, and enhanced the sober yet genial decorum of his bearing. His slightly pontifical air seemed an assurance against ill-time levity. His cheeks were still fat and smooth-shaven, but like many of the successful men of Benham, he now wore a chin-beard, a thick tuft of hair which in his case tapered, so that it bore some resemblance to the beard of a goat, and gave a rough-and-ready aspect to his appearance, suggestive alike of smart, solid worth, and an absence of dandified tendencies. Mr. Parsons had a thicker beard of the same character, which Selma regarded with favor as a badge of serious intentions. "'My friends,' he began when the applause had subsided, then paused and surveyed his audience in a manner which left them in doubt as to whether he was struggling with emotion or busy in silent prayer. "'My friends, a month ago today the citizens of Benham assembled to crown with appropriate and beautiful services a monument which they, the survivors, had erected with pious hands to perpetrate the memory of those who laid down their lives to keep intact our beloved union of states and to banish slavery forever from the confines of our aspiring civilization. A week ago, an equally representative assembly, without regard to creed or party, listened to the exercises attending the dedication of the new courthouse which we have raised to justice, that white-robed goddess, the guardian of the liberties of the people, each was a notable and significant event. On each occasion I had the honor to say a few poor words. We celebrated with bowed heads and with garlands the deeds of the heroic dead. And now we have consecrated ourselves to the opportunities and possibilities of peace under the law, to the revelation of the temper of our new civilization, which, tried in the furnace of war, is to be a grand and vital power for the advancement of the human race, for the righteous furtherance of the brotherhood of man. What is the hope of the world? he asked. America, these United States, a bulwark against tyranny, an asylum for the aspiring and the downtrodden. The eyes of the nations are upon us, and the souls of the survivors and of the sons and the daughters of the patriots who have died in defense of the liberties of our beloved country abide the seed and inspiration for new victories of peace. Our privilege, be it as the heirs of Washington and Franklin and Hamilton and Lincoln and Grant, to set the nations of the earth an example of what peace under the law may accomplish, so that the free-born son of America, from the shores of Cape Cod to the western limits of the Golden Gate, may remain a synonym for noble deeds and noble aims, for truth and patriotism and fearlessness of soul. The speaker's words had been uttered slowly at the outset, ponderous, sonorous, sentence by sentence, like the big drops before a heavy shower. As he warmed to his theme, the pauses ceased, and his speech flowed with the musical sweep of a master of platform oratory. When he spoke of war, his voice choked. In speaking of peace, he paused for an appreciable moment, casting his eyes up as though he could discern the angel of national tranquility hovering over him. Although his opening preoration seemed scarcely germane to the occasion, the audience listened in absorbed silence spellbound by the magnetism of his delivery. They felt sure that he had a point in reserve to which these splendid but agreeable truths were a pertinent introduction. Proceeding with his address, Mr. Lyons made a panegyric on these United States of America from the special standpoint of their dedication to the God of our fathers, 
a solemn figure of speech. The sincerity of his patriotism was emphasized by the religious fervor of his deduction that God was on the side of the nation, and the nation on the side of God. Though he abstained from direct strictures, both his manner and his matter seemed to serve a caveat, so to speak, on the other nations, by declaring that for fineness of heart and thought and deed, the world must look to the land whose wide and well-nigh boundless prairies were blossoming with the buds of truth fanned by the breeze of liberty and fertilized by the aspirations of a God-fearing and God-led population. What is the hope of the world, I repeat, he continued, the plain and sovereign people of our beloved country. Whatever menaces their liberties, whatever detracts from their power and infringes on their prerogatives, is a peril to our institutions and a step backward in the science of government. My friends, we are here tonight to protest against a purpose to invade those liberties, a deliberately conceived design to take away from the sovereign people of the city one of their cherished privileges, the right to decide who shall direct the policy of our free public school system, that priceless heritage of every American. I beg to remind you that this contest is no mere question of healthy rivalry between two great political parties, nor again is it only a vigorous competition between two ambitious and intelligent women. A ballot in behalf of our candidate will be a vote of confidence in the ability of the plain people of this country to adopt the best educational methods without the patronizing dictation of a broad of specialists nurtured on foreign and uninspiring theories of instruction. A ballot against Miss Luella Bailey, the competent and cultivated lady, whose name adds strength and distinction to our ticket, and who has been needlessly and wantonly opposed by those who should be her proud friends, will signify a willingness to renounce one of our most precious liberties, the free man's right to choose those who are to impart to his children mastery of knowledge and love of country. I take my stand tonight as the resolute enemy of this aristocratic and un-American suggestion, and urge you, on the eve of election, to vote your energies to overwhelming beneath the shower of your fearless ballots, this insult to the intelligence of the voters of Benham, and this menace to our free and successful institutions, which under the guidance of the God of our fathers, we purposely keep perpetually progressive and undefiled. The salvo of enthusiasm greeted Mr. Lyons as he concluded. The speeches were apt to cause those whom he addressed to feel that they were no common campaign utterances but eloquent expressions of principle and conviction, clothed in memorable language as indeed they were. He was fond of giving a moral or patriotic flavor to what he said in public, for he entertained both a profound reverence for high moral ideas and an abiding faith in the superiority of everything American. He had arrayed himself on the threshold of his legal career as a friend and champion of the mass of the people, the plain and sovereign people, as he was apt to style them in public. His first and considerable successes had been, as for the counsel for plaintiffs before juries and accident cases against large corporations, and he had thought of himself with complete sincerity as a plain man, contesting for human rights before the bar of justice, by the sheer might of his sonorous voice and diligent brain. His political development had been on the same side. Latterly, the situation had become a little puzzling, though, to a man of straightforward intentions like himself not fundamentally embarrassing, that his last four or five years had altered both the character of his practice and his circumstances, 
so that instead of fighting corporations, he was now the close adviser of a score of them, not the defender of their accident cases, but the confidential attorney who was consulted in regard to their vital interests, and who charged them liberal sums for his services. He still figured in court from time to time in his capacity of the plain man's friend, which he still considered himself to be no less than before. But most of his time was devoted to protecting the legal interests of the railroad, gas, water manufacturing, mining, and other undertakings which the rapid growth of Benham had forgotten. And as a result of this commerce with the leading men of affairs in Benham, and knowledge of what was going on, he had been able to invest his large fees to the best advantage, and had already reaped a rich harvest from the rapid rise in value of the securities of diverse successful enterprises. When new projects were under consideration, he was in a position to have a finger in the pie, and he was able to borrow freely from a local bank, in which he was a director. He was puzzled, it might be said distressed, how to make these rewards of his professional prominence appear compatible with his real political principles, so that the plain and sovereign people would recognize as clearly as he that there was no inconsistency in his having taken advantage of the opportunities for professional advancement thrown his way. He was ambitious for political preferment, sharing the growing impression that he was well qualified for public office, and he desired to rise as the champion of popular ideas. Consequently, he resented bitterly the calumnies which had appeared in one or two irresponsible newspapers, to the effect that he was becoming a corporation attorney and a capitalist. Could a man refuse legitimate business which was thrust upon him? How were his convictions and interests in the cause of struggling humanity altered, were affected by his success at the bar. Hence he neglected no occasion to share his allegiance to progressive doctrine, and to give utterance to the patriotism which at all times was on tap in his emotional system. He had been married, but his wife had been dead a number of years, and he made his home with his aged mother, to whom he was apt to refer with pious tremulousness when he desired to emphasize some domestic situation before a jury. As a staunch member of the Methodist Church, he was on terms of intimate association with his pastor, and was known as a liberal contributor to domestic and foreign missions. Selma was genuinely carried away by the character of his oratory. His sentiments were so completely in accord with her own ideas that she felt he had left nothing unsaid, and had put the case grandly. Here at last was a man who shared with her the convictions with which her brain was seething, a man who was not afraid to give public expression to his views, and who possessed a splendid gift of statement. She had felt sure that she would meet sympathy and kindred spirits in Benham, but her experience in New York had so far depressed her that she had not allowed herself to expect such a thorough-going champion. What a contrast his solid, devotional, yet business-like aspect was to the quizzical lightness of the men in New York she had been told were clever, like Dr. Page and Mr. Dennison. He possessed Wilbur's ardor and reverence with a robustness of physique and a practical air which Wilbur had lacked, lacked to his and her detriment. If Wilbur had been as vigorous in body as he ought to have been, would he have died? She had read somewhere lately that physical delicacy was apt to react on the mind and make one's ideas too fine-spun and unsubstantial. Here was the advantage which a man like Mr. Lyons had over Wilbur. He was strong and thick-set and looked as though he could endure hard work without wincing. So could she. It was a great boon, an essential of effective manhood or womanhood. 
These thoughts followed in the wake of the enthusiasm his personality had aroused in her at the close of his address. She scarcely heard the remarks of the next speaker, the last on the program. Her eyes kept straying wistfully in the direction of Mr. Lyons, and she wondered if there would be an opportunity when the meeting was over to let him know how much she approved of what he had said, and how necessary she felt the promulgation of such ideas was for the welfare of the country. She was aroused from contemplation by the voice of Mrs. Earle, who, now that everybody was standing up preliminary to departure, bent over her front bench on the platform to whisper, "'Wasn't Mr. Lyons splendid?' "'Yes, indeed,' said Selma. "'I should like so much to make his acquaintance, to compare notes with him and thank him for his brave, true words. I know he'd be pleased to meet you. I'll try to catch his eye. I wish some of those Reform Club people could have heard what he thought of them. There!' Hey, he's looking this way. I'm going to attract his attention. Whereupon Mrs. Earle began to nod in his direction energetically. He sees us now and has noticed you. I shouldn't wonder if he has recognized you. Follow me close, Selma, and we'll be able to shake hands with him. By dint of squeezing and stertorous declarations of her desire, Mrs. Earle obtained a gradual passage through the crowd. Many from the audience had ascended to the platform for the purpose of accosting the speakers and a large share of the interest was being bestowed on Mr. Lyons, who was holding an impromptu reception. When at last Mrs. Earle had worked her way to within a few feet of him, her wheezing condition and bulk announced her approach, and procured her consideration from the others in the line, so that she was able to plant herself pervasively and firmly in front of her idol, and take possession of him by the fervid announcement, "'You are simply unanswerable, eloquent, convincing, and unanswerable.' and I have brought with me an old friend, Mrs. Littleton, who sympathizes with your superb utterances and wishes to tell you so. As Selma stepped forward in recognition of this introduction, she vibrated to hear Mr. Lyons say, without a sign of hesitation, a friend whom it is a pleasure to welcome back to Benham. Mrs. Littleton, I am pleased to meet you again. Selma had hoped, and felt at her due, that he would recognize her. Still, as having done so at once was a compliment, which served to enhance the favorable opinion which she had already formed regarding him. "'I have been longing for months, Mr. Lyons,' she said, "'to hear someone say what you have said tonight. I am concerned, as we all are, of course, in Miss Bailey's election, and your advocacy of her cause was most brilliant. But what I refer to, what interested me especially, was the splendid protest you uttered against all movements to prevent the intelligence of the people from asserting itself.' It gave me encouragement and made me feel that the outlook for the future is bright, that our truths must prevail. It was a maxim with Lyons that it was desirable to remember everyone he met, and he prided himself on his ability to call cordially by name clients or chance acquaintances with whom he had not seen for years. Nature had endowed him with a good memory for names and faces, but he had learned to take advantage of all opportunities to brush up his wits before they were called into flattering spontaneous action when his glance attracted by mrs earle's remote gesticulation rested on selma's face he began to ask himself at once where he had seen it before in the interval vouchsafed by her approach he recalled the incident of the divorce that her name had been babcock that she had married again that he was still groping for her name of the husband when the necessary clue was supplied by mrs earle and he was able to make his recognition of her exhaustive. He noticed with approval her pretty face and compact figure, reflecting that the slight gain in flesh was to her advantage, and noticed also her widow's mourning. 
but her eager, fluent address and zealous manner had prevented his attention from secretly wandering with business-like foresight to the next persons in the line of those anxious to shake his hand, and led him to regard her a second time. He was accustomed to compliments, but he was struck by the note of discriminating companionship in her congratulation. He believed that he had much at heart the very issue which she had touched upon, and it gratified him that a woman whose appearance was so attractive to him should single out for sympathetic enthusiasm what was, in his opinion, the cardinal principle involved, instead of expatiating on the assistance which he had rendered Miss Bailey. Lyons said to himself that here was a kindred spirit, a woman with whom conversation would be a pleasure, with whom it would be possible to discourse on terms of mental comradeship. He was partial to comely women, but he did not approve of frivolity, except on special and guarded occasions. "'I thank you cordially for your appreciation,' he answered. "'You have grasped the vital kernel of my speech. I am grateful for your good opinion.' Even in addressing the other sex, Lyons could not forget the responsibility of his frock-coat, and that it was incumbent upon him to be strictly serious in public. Nevertheless, his august but glib demeanor suited Selma's mood better than more obvious gallantry, especially as she got the impression which he really wished to convey that he admired her. It was out of the question for him to prolong the situation in the face of those waiting to grasp his hand, but Lyons heard with interest the statement which Mrs. Earle managed to whisper hoarsely in his ear just as he turned to welcome the next comer, and they were swept along. She is one of our brightest minds. The poor child has recently lost her husband and has come to keep Mr. Parsons' company in his new house. An ideal arrangement. The identity of Mr. Parsons was well known to Lyons. He had met him occasionally, in the past, in other parts of the state, in connection with business complications, and regarded him as a practical, intelligent citizen, whose name would be of value to an aspirant for congressional honors. It occurred to him as he shook hands with those next in line, and addressed them that it would be eminently suitable if he should pay his respects to this newcomer in Benham by a visit. By so doing, he would kill two birds with one stone, for he had reasoned of late that he owed it to himself to see more of the other sex. He had no specific matrimonial intentions, that is, he was not on the lookout for a wife, but he approved of happy unions as one of the great bulwarks of the community, and was well disposed to encounter a suitable helpmate. He should expect physical charms, dignity, capacity, and a sympathetic mind. A woman, in short, who would be an ornament to his home, a Christian influence in society, and a companion whose intelligent tact would be likely to promote his political fortunes. So it happened that in the course of the next few days, he found himself thinking of Mrs. Littleton as a fine figure of a woman. This had not happened to him before since the death of his wife, and it made him thoughtful to the extent of asking, why not? for in spite of his long frock-coat and proper demeanor, passion was not extinct in the bosom of the Honorable James O. Lyons, and he was capable, on special and guarded occasions, of telling the woman that he loved her. End of chapter 20